it's that time of week again where we are bringing you half an hour of science on the radio. That's right, it's Lost in Science. Welcome to the show. My name's Stu, and on the show this week, I'm going to be talking about, I reckon, possibly one of the most loved Australian animals. I don't know anyone who dislikes them anyway. Echidnas. Oh, Oh, I thought we were going to let us guess. No. Yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you. I'm telling you nobody doesn't like echidnas. They're just like spiky platypuses. That's all they are. Sort no, of. that is not what they are. No? They are their own animal. Okay. They eat ants. They, I mean, dig don't holes. dig holes. <laughs> they roll up in a ball. They roll up in balls. Get things They're caught pretty on their adorable. Yeah, yeah. Look, they, they do actually have very important ecological roles. And I'm going to be talking to Dr. Christine Cooper from Curtin University about what that role is and how did they find out exactly what echidnas do in the in, out in the bush when they're doing their echidna thing. Because you see echidnas a lot. Like, it's not like the platypus that's yeah. very mysterious. Yeah. Um, they are, you know... They womp along the road. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Although they are, they are quite mysterious. And then, you know, they run away and if you come near them, they just sort of bury themselves and stop doing what they were doing. So it's really hard to kind of tell what they do. But Christine Cooper found out what it is that they do and she's going to oh, fill us in on... Um, what, what they found about the echidna, Chris? Well, here on Lost in Science, as you know, we're very fond of our um, feature series, you know, a series of stories on a, on a theme, you know. Um, we're, we're fond of starting them, at least, uh, starting new ones. Um, I know that we don't necessarily finish them. Like Stu has a, is still working his way through the elements. You know, he's going to get to the end of that very soon, I'm sure. Um, well, you know, they keep adding new ones. It's not, yeah. it's not, you know, it's not a, it's not a closed shop there. Yeah, but like I started one in the solar system, and this, that's kind of more limited. And you still haven't finished. Yeah, that one. That's, that's 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 fairly limited. But um, I started a new one today. I'm going to call. How do they work? Um. And as, in, as in magnets, how do they yeah, work? Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to do magnets, so okay. um, I'll get on to that sometime. But today it's going to be lasers, how do they work? Oh, very yeah, cool. because I'm sure you've all wondered how you know, lasers, how do they work? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yep. Um, we use them all the time, but what's actually going on there? So we're going we're gonna to find out a bit about just, lasers. Just one more piece of evidence that proves that we live in the future is that we use lasers all the time, but nobody really knows how they work. Um <laughs> Claire, what have you got for us? Well, I've actually got an interview today with um, Anna Sexton, who's a PhD candidate studying at the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences. Um, And she's doing some research into malaria um, and looking specifically about how the parasites interact with our red blood cells, um, which is really interesting. And also a little plug, she is... um, one of the speakers at the Melbourne Science Story Night, the Labora Story, which you have both been part of, we Stu have. and Chris. We and we are going to be doing a summer series um, of Labora Story stories this summer. So I'm going to get the lowdown from Anna about her research before we um, actually put to air her story later on in summer. Cool. Well, uh, double whammy of um, of Anna coming up in the next couple of months. Stay tuned.
echidnas are probably one of the most iconic Australian animals that you can think of. Um, and I was surprised to find out how uh, how little we know about their lifestyle and their habits and their um, and their behaviour. So I have got Dr. Christine Cooper from Curtin University in Western Australia on the phone, and we are going to ask her. Well, I'm going to ask her everything I can think of about echidnas. Dr. Cooper, thanks for joining us on Lost in Science. Thank you for having me. So why, after all these years, do we not know much about echidnas? What is it that, that is so elusive about their behaviour? Um, I think there's two things. One, it sort of generally reflects our understanding of Australia's fauna in general. So there's lots and lots of things that we don't know a lot about most of our native species. And secondly, echidnas are quite cryptic animals, so they can be quite difficult to work on um, because one of their strategies is to be um, quite difficult to find and they'll burrow down into leaf litter and you don't come across them very often even though they're um, over most of the Australian continent. So they're really good at what they do? Yes, yes they are. And they're actually one of the species that's doing really quite well uh, post-European um, settlement. So many of our species have declined, um, whereas echidnas haven't suffered those same declines in distribution and abundance that we see for a lot of uh, other native mammals. So they are, they are burrowing animals. I mean, I know I've, I've come across a few and they sort of tend to sort of get down into the soil pretty quickly and hide themselves really, really well. But that's part of their behaviour is they're burrowing. Why do they burrow? And there's probably three things they do when they're burrowing. So the first thing is they'll dig um, burrows to uh, sleep in and rest in, and even they'll go into torpor or hibernation in those. They will also burrow into the soil as a predator defence strategy. So they'll burrow down so that their uh, stomach is into the soil and only their spines on their back are exposed. And they also dig to access their food. So they eat ants and termites, and they'll dig down into the soil to access those. So... um. Do they, uh, do they move much of the soil around? Does that have an effect on, their, on the environment around, like the, the ecology of the bush even? Yes, we actually have recently done a study where we were able to put accelerometers onto their back, which let us work out what they were doing. So we could tell whether they were walking or resting or digging. And by looking at how much they were digging, we could determine that they can um, move... Uh, large volumes of soil. So if you have 12 echidnas, they can actually dig about the equivalent of an Olympic-sized swimming pool of soil a year. So they're actually having quite significant impacts on the environment by moving this soil and they can actually contribute to improving ecosystem health by breaking that soil up and moving it around. So does that, does that um, influence what, what kind of plants grow and that sort of thing as well? Yep, exactly. So by digging the soil, they prevent soil compaction. They help to incorporate a whole lot of organic matter into the soil. They improve water penetrance into the soil. And so that will really improve plant growth and plant diversity, which in turn impacts on animals as well. So you said you found this out by attaching accelerometers. Is that, what, what is an accelerometer and how did you, how did you get them to stick onto their spiny backs? <laughs> or did you put them on their backs? I mean, where did you put them? <laughs> 
Yeah, we did. We put them on their backs. The accelerometer is a little bit like a Fitbit or the accelerometer in your phone, which picks up movement um, in three planes. And so by putting this onto the echidna's back, we could tell when he was moving around, just like your Fitbit will monitor when you're walking around. So we glued a little aluminium cradle onto their spines, and then we placed the accelerometer and a temperature logger and a transmitter into that cradle and then let the echidna go. And then we could track it with the transmitter and then take it out, recharge the batteries and put it back in the little cradle without having to glue and unglue the actual accelerometer to the echidna each time. And um, so you said echidnas are all over the country. Where, where did you base your work? Now, this work was done in southwest Western Australia um, in an area known as Dryandra Woodland, which is near Narragin, which is about 170 kilometres east of Perth. Okay, and so, but but, can we assume from your, from the data that you've gathered that similar things are happening with echidnas all over the place? Um, we find that there's some differences between echidnas in different parts of Australia. So there's different subspecies of echidnas, and they slightly vary in their behaviour, um, their physiology, and their diet. But they all have the same basic um, requirements of food and digging. So um, they might vary a little bit between different areas, but they are likely to have similar ecosystem impacts across Australia. So we can we can extrapolate from your work that, that they're all doing a good job of tending the the uh, the garden, so to speak, in in all all, all over the country. Yes, that's right. Um, and can I just ask, why did you start to study echidnas in the first place? What got you interested in echidnas? I'm actually really interested in animals that eat ants and termites. So I did my PhD work working on numbats, which are a small marsupial that feeds only on termites. And so a natural extension of that work was then to look at how they compare to echidnas and how um, they're working. So I've just had a PhD student um, submit recently who did um, five years of work on echidnas and we've also done some extra work um, related to her animals and, and the techniques we developed through that project. So it's sort of a continuation on interested in animals that eat ants and termites. And I guess, I guess the ants and termites have uh, a huge impact on the environment as well. So it's, it's sort of a big part of the the ecology of, of Australian uh, natural vegetation and uh, ecosystems. Yes, yes, that's right. Well, um, thanks for uh, thanks for filling us in on your work on the echidnas. And um, I, was, I was saying to you just before we came on air that uh, I, I've never met anyone who didn't like echidnas, maybe unless they stood on one by accident. But um, people seem to be quite interested in echidnas uh, and want to know more about them and uh, you've sort of opened up a window into their into their world. So thanks for uh, letting us peek through it with you. Oh, thank you. That was Dr Christine Cooper from Curtin University in WA talking to us about her recent work on echidnas. You're travelling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. Lasers. How do they work? Lasers. Thank you, Dr. <laughs> yeah. Evil Lair. First of all, can I just say, yeah. isn't laser um, an acronym? It is. Well, that was my first point, Stu. Cool. Well, well spotted. Laser, the word laser is an acronym. It stands, you know what it stands for? 
Ah, oh, no, I, I have known at different times in the past. But it's a good trivia point. question. It stands for Light Amplification by Stimulated Emission of Radiation. And I thought we'd start by looking at how they work by just unpacking that, which sounds like a lot of jargon, but it basically tells you the gist of what happens. So the, the idea is that you have like a particle of light, which we call a photon, as you probably know, it causes an atom to emit another photon of the same wavelength and going in the same direction as the first photon. And that is called stimulated emission. Mm. Um, and it amplifies the light, as the name suggests, because you end up with two photons where before there was only one. Yep. Uh, so it doubles at each time this stimulation yeah, yeah. happens. Yes. Okay. Now, but there is, it's a little more complicated than that, of course, of because course. one of the things you need is the, the atoms need to have some energy to give away. They're not just going to, you know, have all this stuff. They've got an endless energy supply. That's right. They're right. right. So first of all, you have to pump energy into the atoms, which causes the electrons in the atoms to move up into a higher orbit into what we call an excited state. And the idea is to get more atoms excited than non-excited, and that's called a population inversion, for those of you who are playing at home. Um, so the atom won't stay in this excited state forever. And in fact, this is how it normally gets. Most of our light that we get in most life sources you see um, the, is basically atoms in excited states um, jumping down spontaneously in what's called spontaneous emission. But uh, what you do with um, with the laser is you hit it with a photon before it does its spontaneous emission thing, and then you can control the light that it emits by you know causing the electron to jump down in a controlled fashion. Um, and that's basically it. Um, the other thing you normally do with lasers is you put a mirror at each end of it as well to bounce the light backwards and forwards, so you get it you know um, amplifying nice and good there. Do you, do you do that with all lasers? You have to put mirrors there? Yeah, they have a mirror at each end. Well, one of the mirrors is kind of only partially reflective, so it lets some light out. Hang on. I'm, I'm obviously my brain went first to the yeah, laser you went pointer. With, yeah. And I just imagine, you know, pointing a laser in your face. So, but there, there's no mirror associated there. There is. There are mirrors inside it. Oh. Inside it. So inside basically, it. You, have, you have a, um, a material that basically has this, this population inversion, these excited atoms going on, you're pumping energy into that, um, and then the light bounces back and forth between the two mirrors, amplifying, and then shooting at one end. All right. Um, so is, is, does that mean there's a little hole, hole in, in the mirror? Well, one of those mirrors? One of the mirrors is actually partially reflecting, so it lets some light out. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, yep. Now, the, um, the material that's doing this stuff, by the way, so the word laser, as Stu pointed out, was an acronym, but people have kind of gone back and said, well, it sounds like it's a verb, you know, to laze. And so we call that the lazing material is that, that's doing that stuff. Right. So it lasers. Not that lazy though, is it? No, no. Um, and all sorts of things can be made to, thank, very good, Claire. All sorts of things can be made to laze. The first laser, which was um, built in 1960 by Theodore Maiman of Bell Laboratories in the United States, um, it had a ruby rod as its lazing material. What's a ruby rod? A guy from Fifth Element. Um, it's like it's a it's a rod, a cylinder of um, ruby crystal, artificial ruby crystal. So it has a crystal at its core, yes, basically. yeah, with like a coil of light around it to to pump energy into the the ruby. It's right. a pretty cool looking device. Wow. Um, and um, yes, that was the first one. For decades after that first laser was built, they were um, lasers were referred to as a solution in search of a problem because everyone could see that they were pretty cool things. You know, um, they look really cool. Yeah, um, but you know, they didn't know actually what to do with them. So it's, the, what makes them cool is that the light that's emitted out, it's not only, as I said, it's all in the same wavelength, all going the same direction, but it's also the waves are actually in step with each other. 
And we call this, it's called coherent light. Now, a couple of things regarding this that I just need to clear up. Um, <laughs> one of the things is that because all the light is traveling in the same direction in a you know, coherent beam, um, you can't actually see the beam unless it strikes something else, if it's reflected off something else. So it could be like a wall or smoke from a smoke machine um, in a, a nightclub, perhaps. You may have seen it, Claire. Um, when it is reflected, though, um, the light from the different... You know, from whatever it's hitting, there's, you know, different spots of that will reflect light in different ways. And so you get some of the light bouncing off. It will, like, constructively interfere and get a bit brighter where the waves are in step. Some of it will then, they'll get out of step and they'll destructively interfere. So you get these little bright and dark patches. So this is why the laser shone under something often is kind of a speckled pattern. It's kind of a distinctive speckled pattern of the, the laser light. That's because it is so coherent that it does this kind of nice speckly pattern. Um, another thing to um, to notice is that lasers don't actually go pew pew um, when they're fired. They don't, they don't make any sound at all. Do they have wow, wow? <laughs> don't do that either. Some of them do make sounds. Um, are you are you going to get to lightsabers later on? Or no, I'm not going to get to lightsabers. <sighs> Sorry, um, because, because for some reason they're not lasers. Well, they can't be lasers because they stop. Yeah, it's um they sort of shoot out and then stop. That's that's obviously not a laser. That is a laser kind of a problem. Yeah, goes in one direction. When I was at, when I was uni, I remember we talked about this. There was no solution to the wave equations, no one that would give you a beam that would just stop um, somewhere. So yeah, a bit of a problem. That's um, a problem. Yes. Thanks for clearing that up, though. No it's worries. Fizzy. Um, but yeah, so lasers, they're very special. We have found a lot of uses, of course, in the intervening decades now. Um, as you said, they're used for, for pointing at things as a laser pointer. Very yeah. important uses. Academics worldwide are yep. grateful. Yep. They're used for things like um, laser hair removal. Uh, I saw a sign today. It does that. Mm -hmm. um, also, of course, in your disk drives for both um, reading and burning data. They're used um, in supermarket checkouts um, for things like in factories to cut things out, all this kind of stuff. Now most oh, of laser cutters, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now most of these lasers, not the big cutting ones, industrial ones, but the um, most of the other lasers are they're semiconductor lasers. They're laser diodes, and these are really tiny. So what they have, they've got a diode basically, which is kind of a junction between two semiconductors. Um, there's one side has too many electrons, the other side has too few electrons, and so electrons move from one side to the other, and then the current conducts. But if you put a lot of energy into it, then the electrons will give off light as they're doing this, and then you put have mirrors on each side of it, and you bounce the light backwards and forwards just like a normal laser. Um, but it's only tiny, and it will fit in your pocket or in your side, your disk drive, as the case may be. Um, now, that sounds, they're pretty small, but they can actually get quite powerful. The ones used for burning DVDs can get quite powerful. Um, they get to about 250 milliwatts of power. Um, doesn't sound a lot, I know, but it is. Doesn't sound like a lot. Well, it can burn little holes in the thing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, burning, it's burning the material in the disc. That's right. That's right. So it's actually making holes in that material. So it's, you know, you wouldn't want to point it at your skin no, extensively no. or anything like that. The um, what should I call it? Um, laser pointers—they're usually a lot weaker. Though they're like one milliwatt is a usual typical laser laser pointer. Um, still, don't point them in your eye. What about those laser pointers that that um, uh, astronomers use to point at stars when they're um, giving educational talks? No, how yeah. is it pointing yeah, at the stars? I mean, they're obviously not pointing right at the stars, but they they go. Well, you up see a little really spot of light in the sky. No. I mean, there could be some sort of mist. They, must, there, they must be, yeah. They must be reflecting off water vapor or something. They're very, the they're very powerful. Yes, they well, can be anyway. Yes, yeah. Well, we mentioned the, um, the other uses, like the industrial lasers for cutting things. They often use carbon dioxide gas um, in their lacing material, and they get to about three kilowatts. 
So they're pretty powerful. Very powerful. However, you're probably wondering, what's the most powerful laser? Was it the one that uh, Goldfinger was using? (laughs) On the board that he had James Bond tied to in the film Goldfinger, was that a? Yeah, that would have been one of those carbon dioxide lasers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's not the most yeah. powerful laser. The most powerful most laser powerful. I've been able to find is called the Laser for Fast Ignition Experiment, or LFEX. It's from Japan. It's a neodymium doped glass laser. It sounds uh, dope. Yep, it's a hundred meters long. Uh, it produces pulses of two petawatts of power. That is two thousand trillion watts. Of power, so wow. that's, that's that's quite a bit more than one point twenty one gigawatts. Look, it's used to try and ignite nuclear fusion. So basically, it's trying to replicate the conditions at the heart of a star. Now, it sounds powerful, and they do say the team that produced it claimed that um, the pulses, their power is about a thousand times the world's energy consumption, but it only lasts about one trillionth of a second. So the amount of actual energy used is only a couple of hundred joules, which is they reckon it's about as much as a microwave oven would use in two seconds. What are they using it for? Um, to try and replicate the conditions at the heart of a star oh, to ignite God. nuclear fusion. Wow, so so right. they're, they're basically wow. doing fusion yeah, experiments. Yeah, yeah, they right. are. Um, now, it cannot, I know you jumped to these conclusions, it cannot be used as a death ray, at least not on Earth. Um, it is because it's too powerful to be used as a death ray. Um, this is the, the um, kind of the paradox here. So it produces so much energy that it ionizes the air on contact. And ionized gas is like opaque to light. So yeah, it can't get through the atmosphere. It has to be used in a vacuum. So yeah, you probably could use it in space, I could guess. You use it in space, so you, then? Could, you could. You could actually attach it to something. <laughs> you could. <laughs> like Except- a big like a big round satellite, say, yep. and turn it into some kind of, I don't know, death star. Yeah, although it Or it, a death planet. Okay, yeah, but we look at the maths, um, it uses only a couple of hundred joules, we said. Um, now it's been calculated the death star would have needed to use about two point two by ten to the power of thirty two joules to destroy a planet so we're about 30 orders of magnitude off okay. that needed to um, destroy a planet Whew. yeah Lucky. Um, so yeah there we go lasers they're not the death star but in fact they are very useful and that's how they work My guest today is Anna Sexton, who's a PhD candidate studying with the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences. She's studying malaria and how parasites interact with our red blood cells. Anna, welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. (laughs) Can we start just if you could tell us a little bit about the state of disease malaria in the world at the moment? Yeah, so malaria is a pretty devastating disease for the developing world. Last year, it caused 200 million cases and almost half a million people died from malaria last year alone. 
Uh, we've made quite a lot of progress in the last 15 years. So it's um, estimated that approximately 600 million cases of malaria have been averted because of a lot of um, interventions, wow. which is, yeah, <laughs> it's a lot. So interventions such as insecticide-treated bed nets, spraying of walls of people in malaria endemic regions, and also some really handy drugs that have been developed recently. So, so it sounds like the word is getting out in the t- technologies are catching up but there's still it's still a huge issue half a million people in every every year is not a small number no it's definitely still a global health burden and also adding to the devastating effects of the disease is that um, a lot of our current drugs are starting to fail so there's a real push in the research community to try and develop new drugs all of the time because the parasite's quite tricky as soon as we bring in a new drug it develops resistance like Quinine, right? That that used to be able to treat mm-hmm. malaria, didn't yeah, it, back yeah. in the day? Yeah, quinine was um, probably the, one of the first treatments for malaria. And then we um, sort of optimised that drug to get chloroquine. And that had a lot less side effects. And it was actually really cheap and effective. And then it totally failed because the malaria parasite, it, it um, developed resistance against chloroquine. So... Yeah, it has happened time and time again. Every time we bring in a new drug, we always are getting resistance. Tricky little bugger. Yeah, they're very smart. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about your research. Yeah, so I'm particularly interested in uh, the molecular mechanisms that sort of underpin the, um, the symptoms of malaria. So all the tiny little invisible things that are going on in a malaria patient that we're otherwise not aware of, but that sort of present as different symptoms. So I'm particularly interested in anemia. So the symptom of anemia where malaria patients um, lose heaps of red blood cells. So that's partly accounted for because the malaria parasite actually gets into red blood cells, replicates, builds up its numbers and then bursts out, destroying the red blood cell. That happens again and again. Like, for example, in a drop of blood, you could have 250,000 parasites just in that single drop. So it's a huge burden on your red blood cells. But actually, even on top of that, your healthy red blood cells also begin to die, which um, it's, it's really serious for the malaria patient and is one of the main causes of death. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so it's very important to address that issue. Yeah, to understand how it happens because we don't really have um, that much information available about the process. And perhaps if we know more, we can intervene and, and actually treat malaria for the symptom rather than the parasite to help improve patient outcome. So can you tell us a little bit about the experiments that you have been doing? Yeah, so I guess to investigate um, anemia, I'm studying the interaction that malaria parasites have with uninfected healthy red blood cells. And so cells don't really need to touch to actually communicate. They can send out um, chemicals to have sort of a chemical conversation with one another. Like a like an echo or something like that. Yeah, like. so just little chemicals that are to go out into the you know surroundings and other little cells pick them up and they um, actually can change those cells. So I'm studying that process. And so I sort of eavesdrop on the malaria parasites <laughs> and the healthy red blood cells and see what, what's going on there. And after I um, let that chemical conversation occur, I then study what changes or what has changed in the red blood cells after they've been exposed to malaria secretions. And yep. what have you found so far? 
So I have found that they do indeed change. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, one of the important findings that I've found is that the process that their cells, the red blood cells use to make energy actually changes. It, it doesn't work as well. So that's, that has quite a lot of implication for the cells. The cell, <laughs> the cell needs energy. Yeah. So of course now I have to see whether that has clinical relevance. Does that actually explain why um, red blood cells are destroyed in malaria patients? So that's going to take a lot more work. So now I found out what changes. I have a lot more questions about why it changes, etc. And I know it isn't really like a scientist to say what you are expecting to find. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give us a clue, though, as, as to what you think you'll find? Yeah, because of these changes to the, um, the energy-making process, there's a, I see a particular chemical accumulating. It's called uh, lactic acid, and it's oh, that... yeah, that, right, lactic the, acid. Yeah, the chemical that makes your muscles sore. Yeah, so, after you play sport and you haven't played it for, like, <laughs> months. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, so that is a chemical that's accumulating in the red blood cells and that, as the name suggests, it's an acid, so it could acidify the cells um, and I sort of hypothesise that that acidification causes the cell to swell oh. and that um, compromises its structural integrity and that might actually lead to clearance. Um, when the red blood cell circulates to the spleen, the spleen can go, hey, you're not normal, um, I'll take you, I'll take you away. Yeah. So I have a a lot more work to do to confirm that, but that's my current working hypothesis. And so say that hypothesis um, is true, (laughs) um, what, what would be the future implications? I guess you could try and interfere with the lactic acid aspect. Not too sure how to go Mm. about that. I haven't thought that far because first you always want to prove your hypothesis. Um, But if you could interfere with the lactic acid buildups in some way, it could um, stop the, the cells from swelling and losing their structural integrity. Is your research, is it part of a bigger project that's happening at Monash or...? It's not. It's a very individual project just for me, but I use very similar techniques that um, my colleagues use. So our lab is very technique based. And so, yeah, I share a lot of experiments in common, but we all are asking different questions. Are there many other people, researchers in Australia who are working on malaria? Yeah, it's a huge research um, hub for malaria scientists in Melbourne. Um, Yeah, so there's a lot of support in other universities um, and in other institutes and we all uh, often coming together and sharing results. Yeah. Mm. That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> Good to know there's some collaboration yeah, happening there. Absolutely. <laughs> now, you also uh, recently presented a very thrilling talk at Melbourne Science Story Night, The Labora Story, as some of our, our listeners might know Labora Story. Can you give us a bit of a synopsis about your talk? Because it was so amazing. <laughs> Thank you. It was, it was fantastic. <laughs> well, I don't want to give too much away, but it's a story about the malaria parasite, a sexually transmitted disease, and a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is, there are three things that I never thought would have been put in the same sentence yeah. together. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That, yeah, that's a um, that's a really good segue to let our listeners know that Lost in Science will be playing the Labora stories over summer as part of our special summer series. So, yeah, please make sure you listen out for Anna's 
brilliant story. <laughs> Thank you. <Yeah. laughs> I mean, it's it sort of sounds like a riddle. The parasite, the psychologist and the sexually transmitted disease. <laughs> That's right. I like to keep people guessing. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Anna, thanks so much for coming in today and the best of luck with your future research. I'm really looking forward to hearing what how your hypothesis goes. And yeah, please come in and chat to us more when you when you do more research. <laughs> I would love that. Thanks for having me. <laughs> That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost Lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.